You are listening to audio recorded at the Village Church. For more information, go to villagechurchbaltimore.com. Good morning. My name is Dan Hyun. I have the privilege to serve as one of the pastors uh, at this Village Church. And um, so God is doing some really good things here, and, and um, we also see how God is moving as we, if you're new here, our approach to worship is we really believe in the importance of the preaching of God's Word, and we like to preach through the Bible in different, different variations. And this is actually the last Sunday we've been doing this short series um, talking about this journey of trust as we look at this book of Joshua that's found in the Old Testament. And we've, uh, if you want to see some of the old sermons, they're online here. Um, but we've been looking at how we really see different elements of what it means to trust God. And I know for some of you that's totally irrelevant because, you know, trusting God's no matter for you. You're like, oh, I always trust God. But for a few of us here, that's like, that's like real. Like we struggle with that. We struggle with believing and, and letting our life be led by this great God. So we've, we've dug into that. And today we're going to be um, engaging in this idea of how do we trust God through the fight? How do we trust God through the fight? And I'm, I embarrass myself when I preach anyway, so it's, it's no matter. But I'm going to embarrass myself a little more. I'm going to tell you the story of my first fight. And this is, I mean, it's, it's, I feel so stupid talking about this. But first, I was a young dude. Don't worry, this wasn't like last week, right? Um, when I was a young dude, um, I, I saw this situation happening, and I was, I was stupid. And I ran into it. And I thought, okay, I, I got to do something here. And it was this altercation in the middle of the city. I was a young guy, right? And I jumped into this, and I didn't know what I was doing, but I, I must have, like, from movies I've seen or something, I must have done some karate kid stuff or whatever, like, pulled out, like, what I thought you do when you fight. And here's what happened. I got knocked out, like, bad. Like, I, one punch, I got knocked out. And as, later, as I reflected with a stake on my eye, um, I realized, you know, there was a small problem. You don't know how to fight, <laughs> That, that, that was my issue. I went into this thing. I'd seen a lot of movies about it. I've heard, I've seen like videos, how you're supposed to do it. But I had never actually engaged in them. I, I didn't know what it meant to fight. I thought I did. And, and, and today as we talk about this idea of fighting as Christians, um, I think one of the realities of this journey as we follow Jesus is that when you are obedient, you will experience spiritual opposition. Uh, and I, I hope I hope that's not like mind-boggling for some of you who someone told you become a Christian, everything's going to be like champagne and roses. You're never going to worry again in your life. Man, I'm so sorry that someone told you that because it's hard. I mean, you're going to experience spiritual opposition. Um, and here's the thing that might like just send you over. It's like the more obedient you seek to be, often the heightened the sense of spiritual opposition. Like, actually, the more you see God, sometimes you're going to experience even more spiritual warfare. And I mentioned Pastor Roger earlier from Peru. Uh, he was with us yesterday. He was just sharing with us as they're getting ready to start this new church. They're experiencing so many different aspects of spiritual warfare, spiritual battle. And we would say, yeah, maybe it's coincidence or maybe there's something going on because they're like going headfirst into darkness, seeking to be obedient to God. So I, I want to set it up by that to say, I believe the fight is very real. There is a spiritual fight, but sometimes I'm not always sure how prepared we are 
Maybe, especially in our church, maybe some of you have different ideas what it means to be spiritual in spiritual battle or warfare. In my observation, and again, I have a limited observation, but in my observation, sometimes I think, I think we can take like an unhealthy interest in spiritual warfare to the point that like everything becomes demonic. Like anything bad that happens, oh, it, it's the devil. Like, like you, you break down in your car, you're going down the street and your car breaks down. Oh man, I'm getting attacked by the enemy. I'm getting attacked by the devil. Yeah, maybe. Well, maybe it's your car's like 20 years old and you haven't changed the oil for like 10 years and it collapsed, like your radiator fell out. You know, um, maybe, yeah, maybe it was the enemy or, or maybe it's that. Um, because I think sometimes we can go overboard when we talk about spiritual warfare and, and we start trying to see things that maybe aren't fully there. And we can almost ignore God's word in the midst of that and what God says. And we're looking for hints of, of demonic activity. And I've also noticed sometimes there's a personal shortcoming when it comes to being accountable for your sin. To recognize, yeah, there is an enemy. Yeah, there is warfare. But sometimes the things we're experiencing, it's because we're living in sin. We're disobedient. And we're bearing the fruit of that. So I think that's there. Um, but I think sometimes maybe in response to that, or maybe just some of our background, I think on the other side, we, we, we have to be careful that we don't downplay spiritual activity, that we don't minimize the appearance of, of how there might be spiritual forces at work, that if bad things happen, we just kind of explain it away. Ah, that's just human nature. Oh man, that's another reminder that life stinks. School stinks. Baltimore stinks. My family stinks. Everything stinks. Life's just hard. Um, maybe, maybe. But well, wherever you might be on those different spectrum, my hope today is I want us to help all of us, wherever we are, to be less naive about the reality of our fight. I want us to be less naive about the fact that there is a, a battle going on. And there is a fight, whether you are aware of it or not. So can I pray for us for a moment? And we're going to dig in. Lord, I, I admit, just by even introducing those things, some of us, Lord, things can come up, maybe from past experience, maybe we've experienced some bad things in the name of some of these topics, or there's fear or confusion, or maybe just, uh, just never having experience. I pray that you would guide us through that. Lord, we thank you. This is a safe place. Teach us, Lord. Draw us closer to you. Help the word, God, to point us to you. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So let me read from the book of Joshua, a passage near the end of the book. And this is from chapter 23. And this is near the end when uh, the people of Israel have done a lot of what God has called them to, led by this man named Joshua. And here's what it says from verse 1. A long time afterward, when the, peop- when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years. And you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake, for it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan to the Great Sea in the West. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight. And you shall possess their land, just as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them, but you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. 
For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. So if you would read the whole chapter before this, and I would encourage you to do that, it's all, it's all there. Um, God has basically commanded his people, and they used to be led by this name named Moses who passed, and now the leader was Joshua. And at the very beginning, chapter 1, he gave them the mandate, uh, be strong and courageous, do not fear, you're going to go into this thing, you're going to cross this river Jordan, you're going to go into this new land that I've promised to your uh, forefathers, and that's your inheritance. You're going to go in and you're going to receive it. But the reality of it, it was done by God's power, but it was done through military action. There was military action involved, and, and they, they were able to take every nation that God put in front of them with some hiccups. And God's saying here, there's going to be more. You're going to, you're going to take more. And I, I want to stop there for a moment and just sit on that a little bit, because if you're listening, if you're paying attention, um, at our church, we seek to be a people of justice. Justice is a very big thing for our church. And I think as a people of justice, it means acknowledging some of the wrongs that have been done by people in the name of Christ. That's a part of justice. Justice is not putting blinders on and saying, well, that's past is a past. We just move forward. People of justice is saying, what has been done even in the name of Jesus that we need to repent of and humbly acknowledge and say, maybe we're even bearing some of the evil fruit from that now and we weren't even aware. And, you know, as I study about these things personally a little bit more, I, I learn about different thoughts that church leaders very wholeheartedly endorse. Things like, there's something called the doctrine of discovery. And the doctrine of discovery is this idea that the people of God, back in, back in times when there were um, colonial works going on, entering other nations, the doctrine of discovery said that uh, you had a claim to the right of that land by Christian domination. That because you were going in the name of God, you could enter another country that, that didn't follow God, and it was your right, it, if any, it was your mandate, it was your duty, you needed to take that so that people could know God and you could take over and, and educate the heathens, uh, let people know. And, you know, I've, I've done some ministry work, you know, Thomas and Jane talk about uh, Albuquerque, I've been in New Mexico working in Navajo Nation for a few years, and man, one of the hardest aspects of ministry as a Christian is acknowledging Christians have done some horrific things to native peoples, even in our own nation and throughout the world. That in the name of Christ, we've, we've allowed that to justify brutality, actions, taking over in a very um, colonial mindset. And, and if, as you think about things like that, and we hear about even around the world injustice that's not in, done in the name of God, for some of you, as you read, even see what we've been seeing through these weeks through Joshua, it might feel difficult for you to reconcile the God that you see in some of these stories in the scriptures, particularly in the Old Testament, um, where you see God uh, leading his people in military action. You're like, all right, you know, that's the stuff I, I, I love, that whole New Testament, God is love stuff, and love is patient, love is kind. Yo, put that on my coffee mug. But uh, that other stuff, man, that makes me really uncomfortable. And, and, 
maybe that was like a different God or God. He was like kind of bipolar and he really changed when Jesus came around, whatever it might be. Um, But I, I think it's important to understand here as we read in Joshua and even in other places, particularly in the Old Testament, the, ne- the deeper nature of what's occurring here. Because uh, what I'm saying is if we read the Bible partic- primarily as a political history book, for example, um, that, that the Bible is primarily a history book for this ethnic nation of Israel, I believe we miss the bigger picture of what's being described in places like this and others throughout Scripture. Because we need to engage with the Bible to understand it as God's larger story of redemption. Redemption is a simple word to mean rescue, as God has rescued his people. Though it's made up of 66 books in the Bible, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, this one Bible, it's a unified story from beginning to end of God's work to rescue and to redeem this human creation for his own glory and for our joy. That the whole Bible is this story from beginning to end of how man was created to love and honor God and then fell rebellious, fell away. But God started this rescue plan that would ultimately culminate in the work of this God-man, Jesus Christ, who came to this earth, took on our sin, became our atonement, died on a cross, and then rose from the grave. And then the church would go forward to make that message known. The whole Bible is about that. So when we read things like what we read here in Joshua today, we we need to understand those portions in light of that context. This is not merely, the book of Joshua is not merely um, like a geopolitical conquest, conflict to to acquire land and and change some national boundaries. That's really not the point of this. Um, Though the battle might be physically occurring between different tribes and different peoples, Israel's battle here is ultimately against a greater foe. We have to recognize that. The whole storyline of scriptures, Israel, they might be engaged in different conflicts with different people groups, but ultimately the deeper enemy, if you go below the surface, there is a common foe. And for us to understand our fight, we still have that same enemy today. And his name is Satan. The enemy's name is Satan. And, and basically, our first main point here, we have to know our enemy. We have to know the enemy that's been present in the scriptures from the beginning, even to this day. And, and I'm not tone deaf. So even as I say that here in this room, I don't know a lot of you here. I'm guessing some of you, maybe you got invited here. You're just like looking to your friend. You're giving them the side eye. You're like, yo, this is one of those wacky churches, isn't it? You didn't tell me that. You look kind of normal. This is one of those wacky churches, huh? He talking like the devil's real. I mean, when are you going to pull out the snakes and stuff, right? Is it like, you're like, you're like, seriously, 2018? People still think like this? Um, what I'm going to suggest is one of the reasons that some of us, uh, probably many of us, we often struggle is that we don't recognize it's not just that life is hard but we have an actual enemy who hates us. Some of the reason we struggle and we're not even aware of it is you are going through stuff and you've just kind of said it's just, life just stinks, it's hard. And you don't realize you have an adversary described in the Bible who hates you, despises you, will do anything to destroy you. And we're oblivious (laughs) We're oblivious. It's like that famous line from The Usual Suspects, the movie. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Wow. Some of the best theology come from 
Hollywood directors, right? The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Because, here's my point, we can trace back the warfare that we see here in Joshua to the very beginning of Israel's redemptive history. It's where we first meet this adversary. So if you would go back all the way to the beginning in your Bible, you meet this man and a wife, Adam and Eve, first created people of God. They were made in his image. Everything was perfect. They were created to know God, love God, receive from God, and never have to lack for anything. But they chose to rebel against God and his word. And, and tragically, things got broken. Things got broken for them, but things got broken for all of humankind. All people, the whole world, individually, but everything. But the thing is, in the midst of humanity's worst moment of being separated from God, because ultimately that was the main punishment, in the midst of that, God made a promise and involved judgment. And part of that, in Genesis 3.15, God makes judgment against the enemy, the adversary, Satan. And here's what he says. He was in the form of a serpent. But he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his feet, uh, his heel. Usually in a good story, some of you are writers, you know this, you don't give away the ending. You want a twist, right? You want a little bit of a cliffhanger. Um, the story of God's redemption of a broken creation, it is the best story. It's good news. It's the best story out there. But God clearly lets us know the end. He's like, there's going to be no drama here. I'm telling you what's going to happen. I'm going to tell you who's going to win this thing. God pronounces judgment on Satan here. And this verse, it's God's promise of the Redeemer. His name's Jesus, that one day he would come and he would deliver his people by being bruised in death on a cross. He would be bruised, not just his body, but his, his soul, by, but he would crush the head of the serpent in rise, being raised from the grave. He would crush the head of the serpent, just like God promised here. And he would defeat Satan. He would defeat sin. And he would crush death forever. And then the rest of the Bible then, from Genesis this point, it shows us how God does it. From Genesis 3 all the way down then, God shows us how this gets accomplished. And oh man, I'm like eager to see what that's going to look like one day when full judgment comes on our enemy. I love how one pastor put it. I, recently, I read recently, he said, Satan is an SOB. I can't wait until Christ kicks him in the teeth and crushes his head once and for all. I'm glad I get to be there. Amen. Like one day, all of the destruction we feel, all the things that you and I, we just get used to because life is just miserable. We forget that's not the way it was intended. It was never created to be that way. All the hardships you experience in your family, all the cancers, all the addictions, all the hate, all the racism, all the sexism, all the brutality, all of the discord within families, all of the friendships that gets broken, all of these things that just make us want to leave the world sometimes, we are promised that one day there will be an end to that. That Jesus has crushed the head. Though he was bruised. Because we got to be very clear on understanding who wins here. Again, this is not Hollywood, so there's not much drama here. This is not a Hollywood good versus evil thing coming. And they both got like an end of the tug of war. And oh, Satan's winning a little. Oh no, God. It's like God's like this with a finger, right? It's done. It's done. It's not even a matter. Satan has been vanquished. But here's the thing. It doesn't mean he's not going down without a fight. 
His power is limited. But he is not God. If you have ever heard that Satan and God are kind of like adversaries, it's not. God is God. Satan is not God. But he will do everything, even within his limited power, to destroy everyone else along with him. Because he knows he is lost. He knows he's vanquished. And he will do whatever he can to try to destroy everyone else and bring them along with him. He is nasty. He, he's uh, vicious, conniving. He's a liar. And, and this fool, he don't play fair. This fool don't play fair. Because sometimes he's smooth as silk. Sometimes he, he looks like the form of an angel. He's good looking. He doesn't look vicious. He looks sweet. Because if your impression of the enemy is like Hollywood and like head spinning around and green projectiles and like CGI going crazy, um, maybe, and I, I've seen some stuff that's pretty close to that, but sometimes the fight is very subtle. And it's simply the enemy doing whatever he can do so that you don't live in light of the belief and the victory that you have in Christ. Sometimes spiritual fight is very subtle and the enemy doing whatever he can to distract you, to help you not to believe who you are in Jesus and to follow another way. He will do anything to break the church. He will do anything to turn God's people from her mission. I personally believe in our country, sins of racism, for instance, I believe that's demonic. I believe our nation in some ways was founded upon those things and we've never truly repented. It's demonic. The enemy has used these things to infiltrate the church and even we're seeing the fruit of dividing the church. I believe it's the work of the enemy, though people have their responsibility as well. We're not naive in that. Again, some of you are like, oh, wow, man, I really picked the wrong Sunday to come here. This is a freaky church. Uh, I'm not trying to freak you out. I'm not trying to freak you out, but again, I don't want you to be naive. I don't want you to be naive. Because God has told us already the nature of this fight. We look at places like Ephesians chapter 6. And God describes it here through his, through his servant in verse 10. It says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Especially here. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand it in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Paul is describing here the nature of our fight, that life is a fight. But sometimes, guys, we are looking at eyes that are way too tied to our flesh. And we see just what's right in front of us and say, that's my obstacle. That's my battle. I just got a bad job. I just got a crummy family. Oh, man, I made bad decisions. All of that might be true. But we also cannot be naive and recognize what the scriptures are promising through the Lord's word is that there are deeper things going on. And again, I'm not about the boogeyman. Your toast burns. It might be that you forgot to set that thing back on unbaked terms, right? It, it, everything is not the enemy. Everything's not. It's the devil's fault. Some of it's your fault. But there are also things that you might be fully faithfully obeying God and things are happening and don't just set it off to coincidence. Saying, oh, rough day. Oh, wow, one of those weeks. 
Maybe you're in a season where you are faithfully doing everything you can to follow God. Loving him, loving your neighbor, and things are just going to crud. And you're like, whoa, wow, what a bad coincidence. And I'm not saying automatically, oh yeah, spiritual warfare. But I'm saying, don't be naive. There's a good chance it is. And if it is, the best thing you can do is come humbly before God. Say, God, thank you for reminding me again, this is a fight. And if I'm going to fight, I need to be in your power. Need to be in your power. Later in verse 16, it describes the attacks of the enemy as flaming darts. I think that's such a uh, timely visual, like these darts that are full of fire that are getting thrown at us in different ways. And I I think we have different examples of that in our life. Sometimes doubt or uh, flaming darts, it takes the form of like doubt. And I'm not saying doubt. In our church, we place a high value on asking questions. We will never like tell you, oh, you shouldn't ask questions. You don't do that in church. Come on, where's your faith? I believe the church should be the best place we ask questions. It should be the healthiest place, the safest place. But I'm talking about more doubt where something happens in your heart and you just can't receive teaching anymore. Like your heart's gotten hard. And like people will tell you stuff and you're like, no, no, that, I, I don't believe that. I, no. Maybe that's just something there or, or maybe it's like the enemy hardening your heart to disbelieve anything that's going against what you want. Sometimes the enemy works that way. Uh, one of the best, one of the strongest ways the enemy works is these darts of isolation. Isolation. And, and just this, this, I would say, uh, unbiblical idea that the more mature you get as a Christian, the less you need people. That's like unbiblical. It's unbiblical. Um, I'm actually going to suggest, uh, you know, God has given me more and more opportunities to minister in different places and bring influence. I ask more people to pray for me. I ask more people to cover me in prayer because we believe um, as you are being faithful and obedient, the enemy might work even more over time. I need more covering. I need more prayer. And just on a side note, just I think it's relevant for maybe many of us here. Um, one of the ways that you might receive oppression from the enemy this year, maybe you're new to town, maybe you're a student and you're here because it's the beginning of school. You're like, no homework. This is great. I love it. Um, don't be surprised about a month in, you start to hear voices and you think it's your own head and, and thinking, oh man, yeah, you can't go to church today. Wow. Look how much work you got to do here. I mean, you're already falling behind. You, none of your classmates, none of them are going to church. That's precious hours. And maybe that's just you. Or maybe that's the enemy trying to push you into isolation. And my exhortation for you is you need to be connected in community. And I'll be very clear here. I would love if that's here at the Village Church. It doesn't have to be. Find somewhere, though. Find somewhere that you are not isolated because that's one of the enemy's strategies, one of his darts. Another dart I've seen so much, even in our context, is the dart of unforgiveness. This dart that that when we've been hurt, when we've been wounded, and oftentimes very genuinely, like we're not making up stuff, but where God desires to lead us into a place of repentance, both for ourselves, but also forgiving others, we hold on to this unforgiveness. And it causes this bitterness and strangulation of our heart, where God has caused our heart to grow bigger and softer and more flowing. Unforgiveness leads us in this place where we're holding on, we're clenching, and and enemy loves it. Enemy loves it because you know how you understand the forgiveness of God in probably the most incredible way when you have to forgive other people. When you got to forgive people who've genuinely hurt you, that's when you start to receive 
this idea, wow, I can't believe God forgives me. Unbelievable. And, and it becomes real and beyond just textbook theology. But the enemy often works through unforgiveness. And maybe even right now, some of the reason that we can't fully engage with God is we're holding on to bitterness and frustration and anger at how someone has done something in our life. And you know, another way the enemy works is in adversity. Um, I've got a pet peeve. Um, you can tell I rant sometimes on Sundays. I, I've got a pet peeve sometimes, though, of, of some prominent Bible teachers, often on TV, that tell people, if you follow God faithfully, you should have no more adversity. Your problem is a lack of faith. The reason why you're living in that little shack instead of that mansion is you don't have enough faith. Uh, The reason why uh, your family is getting stricken with the cancer right now, there must be a faith issue in your family. Oh, you don't believe enough. Oh, the reason why things are happening, you're not praying hard enough. Maybe, maybe, but I actually think I prefer the biblical point of view, which says you follow Christ and things are going to be real hard. That we are part of a broken world. And things, when we follow God, it's never promised that everything is going to be like incredible on this earth. Though I do believe God is also the giver of good gifts. So he gives blessings. He gives favor. He gives health. He gives prosperity. I believe all that. But he also sometimes doesn't give us any of that. But you know what he gives us that's better? He gives us himself. He gives us himself. Even if you lose all your body, you lose every fiber of your being, you lose every person in your family, you go through hell on this earth, you're promised that one thing that cannot be separated from you is the love of God, his presence in your life. So if you're going through adversity, and maybe it's like directly an attack of the enemy, don't automatically conclude that you are doing something apart from God. Maybe you're following him faithfully, and he's teaching you what it means to depend on him when you have nothing else to hold on to. Guys, my point here, I want you to be sober. I I want you to be aware that when you're encountering challenge in your life, it might not just be that you're having a bad day or that people stink. Maybe, it, maybe people stink, but it might not just be that. Or, or here's the thing. I think sometimes we can even couch it in very theological-sounding language and say things like, oh, we're just part of a broken world. It's the effects of sin in our world. And I absolutely believe that's true, but I also want you to think that maybe in a broken world, we recognize that there is someone actively promoting brokenness. That in a broken world, maybe there's someone who's consciously trying to make things more broken. So maybe the marital conflict that some of you are experiencing, it's your sin, but maybe it's the enemy also trying to do nothing more than what he glories in is just destroy marriages and families. Maybe the addictions challenges you have, whatever they might be, whether they are the addictions of success, pornography, narcotics, beauty, Maybe it's just your sin issues, but also maybe it's the enemy seeking to destroy you and give you a false God to hold on to. Let's not be naive that there is an enemy actively promoting brokenness. But guys, having said all that, we are not a people without hope. Amen? 
We are not a people without hope. James 4, 7, it's not up here, but it reads, resist the devil and he will flee from you. It says, resist the devil and he, he will flee from you. God tells us, fight, fight. And so how do we fight? How do we fight? Joshua 23, 6, original passage, it says, therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it, neither to the right hand or to the left. If you've read Joshua, this should echo the first chapter when Joshua received his initial instructions that he now passes on, where God has said, don't turn from the book of the law, meditate on it day and night so that you may be prosperous and successful. So he's saying, be in the word. How do you fight? Be attached to my word. Soak in this word. And I love in the original passage here in 23 verses 3 and 10 where it has this idea, it's the Lord your God who fights for you. It's the Lord your God who fights for you. And for me, I think I used to read the Bible and I still do to get more information. But more and more, I read the Bible. I feel like I have no choice because in a life that I feel so weak and helpless, I need to be reminded of the God who's promised that he fights for me. And page after page after page of this book, I see a God who's faithful to a people who are often faithless. I see a God who sacrificed for the sake of those who want to hold on to their own life and he fights for them. And he fights passionately for them to the point of even giving up his own life through Christ. Because we see throughout a scripture, a God who fights for his beloved. And the more time I spend in the word, you would think that the more time you spend in the Bible, you kind of feel like you need it less. It's weird how it works. The more time I spend in the Bible, the more time I feel like I need God. It's weird how it works. The more time I spend in the word, the more I'm convinced and I believe how much I need God. How does that work then? That last verse we're looking at in chapter 23, for some of you, it might look curious at verse 11. Look at it again. It says, be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For some of us, it might sound weird to be commanded to love. You're like, how, how can you do that? You can't make someone love someone. You got to feel it. You got to fall into it. You got to like sense it. Um, we're commanded here. Be very careful, therefore, to love your God. I think... What this is saying is here, there's a reason you have to be commanded to love God because in our flesh, we often don't love God. We have to consciously, intentionally choose it because left to ourselves, we don't always feel like we love God. We just don't. And our greatest fight, so we've talked about our enemy, our adversary, and that's very real, but sometimes the greatest way that that fight might be manifested in our lives is the fight is within ourselves. The fight is with us. And for me, this is the most humbling part of the fight because I can look at all of those things from the outside and I can say the opposition, the enemy, the way that the adversary, I can see all that. But if I'm honest my biggest challenge often boils down to me. My biggest challenge to loving God often boils down to my own heart. Maybe you're like me, and you are prone to harming yourself in destructive cycles. This is self-reflection. You're prone to harming yourself in destructive cycles that seem to have gone on as long as you can remember. Or maybe for some of you, you have repeatedly made bad decisions, bad choices with your money, with your relationships, with your behaviors, your addictions. Maybe for some of you, you're like me, and you selfishly fall into this pattern where you let the world revolve around you rather than the honest 
reality where it's supposed to revolve around God and for others. Maybe you're like me and you do and you think things that you know are separating you from God. And guys, honestly, for me, sometimes that's my greatest discouragement where I feel like I should know and do better and I don't. If that is you, do not despair. Look to hope and see that hope has a name and his name is Jesus. Amen? We do not despair because we do have hope and his name is Jesus. Because when we see Jesus, we see the God who came to this earth and was fully man. So he encountered every challenge that you and I might. From his whole life, it was a fight. His whole life was a fight. He had moments where he was in the desert, fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. And he was encountered with temptations from the devil, from Satan, who gave him temptations to lay it all down. Just say these things and I'll let you eat. I'll give you everything. Everyone will bow down before you. He had a fight. From that moment, he had a fight through his whole life where people would speak ill of him, speak untruths about him, all the way to this thing called a cross where even the night before that he was in the garden praying and you're thinking, this is God. He knows how it's going to all end up. But he's crying and praying and it says his tears are like blood because he's asking God, Father, is there any other way this can be done? Because he knows the brutality of this cup, this torture, to the point where he's even on the cross hanging and he's fighting to the very end saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's in agony. He's in torture. And the whole life is a fight. And we have to ask, why did Jesus fight like that? And he did it for love. He did it for love for you and for me. We read about that kind of love in Romans chapter 8, verse 38 and 39. It says, for I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Look at that. It's trying to give us in literary language. There's nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Not even you. Not even you. As much as you give yourself a chance to try to be separated from God, not even you can separate yourself from the love of God. It's like the Andy Minio song for some of you hip-hop fans where he says, my biggest enemy is me and even I can't stop me. I invite you to trust in this God who fights for you. Trust in this God who fights for you. Whether your attacks from our, are from outside of you or even maybe you're recognizing here you are your own worst enemy and the enemy is even allowing your own life to be your enemy. Repent of trusting yourself and trust this God who fights for you. Because if you know that he fights for you, here's my word, church, fight. If you know he fights for you, and 1 John 4, 4 tells us, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Guys, fight, fight. Don't just just sit back and receive um, torment and attack. Fight, fight in trusting God. Let me ask you to stand with me. Let me ask you to stand with me. And I want to invite you to the table. And as we have a table up here with the bread, reminding us of the broken body of Jesus Christ, and the cups with the blood of Christ that was shed, we're reminded to take this meal together and be reminded of the one who faithfully fought for us. And if you're a Christian, and maybe you're weary, and you are 
you're just tired of fighting, or maybe you didn't even know there's a fight, I invite you to come up here, be reminded of the Savior who fought all the way till the end, and he reigns victorious, and our promise is that he will reign in eternity. Take of the meal. You can come up both sides. Take a piece of the bread. Dip it in the cup right there. And remember the faithfulness of God. If you're not a Christian, and what I mean by that, I'm not talking religious language, but you have not trusted God with your life in that way, I want to invite you, take that step today and say, I want to know this Christ who fights for me. I'm tired of just fighting on my own, and I want to know him. If you have any questions, I would love to talk and pray with you over the side. Feel free to do that. Let's respond right now in song and prayer and the Lord's Supper. Lord, help us as we seek you. Help us as we seek you. Help us to not be so naive, Lord, that some of us might recognize some of the opposition we're experiencing. It's not just because things have gone wrong, but Lord, there is an adversary. And Lord, that we would fight for your glory, but we would fight for our souls. We would fight for our marriages. We would fight for our families. We'd fight for our schools. We'd fight for our city. We'd fight for this church, Lord. Help us to fight, Lord, because we know we have been given victory in you. So guide us in that Holy Spirit. Heal some of us, Lord, who've been living naively. And would you restore us in the power we have in you?